Welcome to SCG Church's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. A couple quick announcements before we jump in. Uh, we have VBS that's coming up, and we've been talking about that and getting everybody signed up. And, and um, apparently, you are ready to get the kids out of the house for a week because we have hundreds of kids that have already been signed up, um, which is great news. And we're going to have many more. And um, what we're trying to do is not limit the amount of kids um, that, uh, that come to VBS. But one of the biggest or the limiting factor is going to be if we have enough volunteers. And right now, we don't. Okay, and so we're going to need some people to step up and volunteer. There's lots of different jobs that you can do. You don't necessarily have to teach kids, although that could be a job. Um, It could be helping with check-in. It could be a a ton of different things. And so if you have even the the slightest availability um, to come and to volunteer during that week, please do so. And you can get uh, some information at the kids building after service. Uh, An early bird sign-up ends on the 25th, and so that would be tomorrow. So if you want to get a discount, um, make sure you sign up by then. And then um, next weekend is a big weekend for us because we are calling it Welcome Back Weekend. And uh, we are welcoming people back maybe for the first time since uh, this whole uh, COVID situation to our campus. So some people are going to be here on Saturday nights if they're not comfortable going inside. Because on Sunday morning, we're going to be inside starting next weekend. So we're very excited about that. So uh, just to clarify, Saturday, still same time, same place, but Sunday mornings will be 10 o'clock inside, and we are going to have something special at both of those services. It may be Chick-fil-A in in and out at one of the, I don't know, we'll just have to see, but you better be here early if you want to get a ticket so you can get some for free. All right, Um, it's going to be a big celebration, so make sure you're here. And then Mother's Day weekend, May 8th and 9th, um, we are going to be having a baby dedication, and there is a class tomorrow after service, and so if you haven't signed up for that, please do so, because tomorrow is going to be the class, and we don't want you to miss out on that. And then finally, I want to just thank you guys for your generosity in this season, um, that uh, you guys have continued to give and been faithful in that. And so thank you for, for doing that. We really do appreciate it. And if you do give in person, there's some uh, offering boxes on the way out that you can give or give online, which is what everybody kind of does. And it's really convenient, and it's really nice, and it's easy. Okay, uh, so let's jump in. Here's where we've been. Is, um, we, uh, before and leading up to Easter, we did six weeks on uh, Masterclass of Matthew. And we, we went all the way through to Easter, and we walked along the Matthew story of, the, uh, of Holy Week and eventually Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And after Easter, we said, well, what's next? You know, what's next in the story? And, and we can actually follow the story because we can jump over to the book of Acts. So Acts is written by the author Luke. And if you know anything about the Bible, there's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the, the stories of Jesus' life, death, um, and resurrection. And Luke wrote a part two to his story of Jesus' gospel, which is the book of Acts, or Acts of the Apostles. And it tells us um, about the, the emergence of and the beginning of the church. And so, so far in the first two chapters of Acts, we've talked about two major events. One is the Holy Spirit's arrival. The other is the launch of the church. So if you remember on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes as the disciples are praying and empowers them, and then they go out, and uh, Peter jumps up, and he starts preaching in front of thousands of people who are there, and um, they decide, you know what? What he's saying is true. Jesus really was the Messiah, and thousands of people just in that first day put their faith in Christ, and that is opening day of the church, and it all starts moving from there. And we talked about really three major kind of points that have been made so far. The first one is to believe, second one is be baptized, and third is to belong. 
So Peter gets up there, and this is kind of the message that he preaches. He says, you must believe in Jesus. You must believe in his resurrection. You must believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior. You must put your trust in him. And we, uh, we did that on Easter, and we had hundreds of people who said for the first time, yes, I, I want to put my trust in Jesus. I want to believe in him. And then the following weekend, we did what Peter said next, which is now be baptized. This is like a public proclamation of I have begun to follow Jesus. He is the authority of my life. And so we did that the week after Easter. We had our first in-service baptism, which was really cool. We had dozens of folks get baptized, and that was super fun. And then last week, Doyle talked about belonging. So once you have believed and then you've been baptized, then you belong. You belong to his family. And his family is here at the church, not just Seacoast, but the, you know, the, the church at large. And he says that you need to be committed to a local church, to be a part of that family. And so we talked a little bit about what that looks like, to be a Christian and part of a local church body and, and um, in, in, in committed community. And so today, um, we're gonna go to the next thing. And I'm gonna give you a little hint. If you haven't figured this out, it's gonna start with a B. Do you get it? Isn't it nice how the Bible flows like that? I just made it up, it's not. You're gonna have to react something. Give me something here, people. All right, okay, all right, that was sympathy, but I'll take it. So here's the story. Uh, Acts three, and that's where we're gonna be today is Acts three and four. And um, I'll kind of give you an overview because there's a, a ton that's happening here is we see that Peter and John, who of course are both disciples of Jesus, but now are leaders in this early church movement, they decide to head into the temple to pray. And as they approach the temple gates, they see a beggar that is sitting there. And this beggar has been sitting there for years begging for money because he's crippled. And so he walks up to, or they walk up to this, this beggar, and Peter says, you know, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I will give to you. Rise up and be healed in Jesus' name. And all of a sudden, miraculously, this crippled man stands up and he begins to walk. And, um, and the crowd starts to, to kind of see what's taking place and, and see that this man who was sitting there, and many of them probably passed him on a daily basis, saw that he stood up and he began to walk. And, and he's walking into the temple with Peter and John by his side. And so as this commotion is taking place, and this guy is walking in and everybody's seeing it, um, the crowd starts to gather around, probably asking questions like, what just took place? How did this happen? And Peter sees this as an opportunity to do what? Preach, because this is what Peter does, right? We learned this in the first couple chapters is Peter is a preacher man. And so he says, well, there's a crowd. I'm gonna do one of two things, either preach or take an offering. We'll see how it goes, right? Because that's what we, no? Okay, you guys are killing me. I'm just gonna keep going then, all right. And so Peter sees this as an opportunity, and so he jumps up, and this is his second sermon. And his first sermon, or his second sermon, is a lot like the first sermon. He pretty much has a, a very simple formula. Here's what he says. He says something like, Jesus was the Messiah. He came and claimed to be. But you not only rejected him, but you killed him. Very, very like friendly, seeker-sensitive kind of message, if you know anything about that. He goes, okay, here's the deal. Everybody here, whether you observe Jesus' death or not, it is your sin that crucified him, that killed him. And then he says, however, God vindicated Jesus' claims by raising him from the dead. So your responsibility is to repent from your sins, your rebellion against God, and come to him. Give your life over to Jesus. And then he gives a warning. He says, one day, this Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to finish what he started. He's going to put the world back together. And he's gonna divide the world into two, those who are with him and those who are against him, those who follow and those who have rejected. And he will give eternal life to those who follow him and he will condemn those who do not. 
And the result is, oh, and by the way, he says, and if you don't believe these big audacious claims that I'm making, here's yet another proof. This man whom you all know, who has been crippled his entire life, is now walking. And so it says that the result is sort of like the first one. Thousands of people stand up and say, you know what, you're right. Jesus really is the Messiah. And they give their life over to him. And so this created an even bigger stir in this city because not only do you have this man who was crippled that is now healed, but now you have thousands of people in the city where just two months ago, Jesus was publicly crucified, standing and saying, this man has been raised from the dead and worshiping him. You can imagine that there was a lot of commotion. Of course, the religious leaders hear about what's happening and and they go and they find Peter and John and they arrest them and they put them in jail and, and, um, for causing this big disruption for the night. And the next morning, they call them out and they say, okay, come and speak to the religious leaders and, um, and explain to us what's, what's going on here. Now, again, we know this about Peter. He gets up there. He sees an audience, hostile audience, people not too excited with him, but what does he do? Preaches. Thank you. One person's paying attention tonight. All right, he preaches. I'm not going to ever again, but he does. Okay. No. So he goes into this whole thing, same sermon, same points. He was the Messiah. You rejected him and you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. This man is a proof of his healing. And then he ends with this big finale as if all of that weren't um, offensive enough. Here's what he says in chapter four, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Okay, so if I were standing there next to Peter, like I was John, and I'm observing Peter do these speeches, and so far they've ended us up uh, in prison, now we're about, we're on trial, and we could be put to death, and then he just keeps just, just, just leaning into it. Like, I might assume that my friend Peter has a death wish is this is not the time to say controversial things. This is the time that we should maybe get them on our side. Let's start talking about love and unity and something like that. Let's say something that kind of wins the crowd over, but instead you continue to put salt in the wound. Well, the religious leaders are kind of stuck. The crowd is with them. It's hard to deny what had happened because they all saw this man. They knew him. They knew he had been healed. And so they weren't really sure what they could do. They couldn't just, just punish them. And so they tried a different strategy. They said, okay, you know what? We don't know what to make of all of this, but just, just stop talking about this Jesus person. And here's their response in verse 19, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They're like, are you seeing the same thing we're seeing here? We saw Jesus' resurrection. Now we see even more miraculous things happening. Do you think that we're just going to say, nah, you know what, let's just quit talking about it? No. Verse 21, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed, and I love this next part, was over 40 years old. <laughs> kind of, I think that's kind of funny, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, he was crippled from birth, now he can walk, but guess what else is crazy? He's over 40, you know? <laughs> like, that's so old. Oh, uh, anyway, so uh, once Peter and John are released, uh, they go back to the other believers and they start to tell them what has happened and, and then they begin to pray. And so I want to pause just real quick. And I want to ask you, if this were you, if you were in this situation, what would you pray about? What would you pray about? Now, I have a pretty good guess of what you would pray about because it's probably the same thing that I would pray about. Lord, 
please keep me safe, watch over me, protect my family, keep these crazies away from me because that's what I pray all the time is I pray for my own personal safety and the protection of my family and that's pretty much what most of my prayer life is about. And I have a feeling yours is too. It's because we've been taught that we need to be safe and cautious and agreeable. If you look at our lives, you know this is true, is we have insurance for everything, for our cars, our houses, even pet insurance, which I don't even know what happened, but pet insurance, we have insurance for everything. We don't want to say something that might be offensive to other people. We put helmets on our kids to walk up the stairs. I mean, we want to make sure that we are safe at all times. And I think this type of attitude has also shaped the way that we, we live out our faith. So I went around the office this week, and I asked all of the, uh, all the staff here, I said, give me one word that you think best describes the average Christian in this last year. And it was almost unanimous. They all used kind of different words to explain the same three things. And I'll tell you what the answers were. Apathetic, angry, and afraid. Those are the three words that describe the average Christian this last year. Is they were apathetic, which we know to be true statistically, is one in three people who were practicing Christians before this pandemic stopped attending or even watching churches in 2020. Maybe it's they're an introvert and they kind of saw this as a way for them to, oh, I don't have to deal with people anymore. This is fantastic. This is a way for me to kind of exit and nobody's going to notice. Or, or maybe they just kind of gradually floated away and they realized, you know, I don't really see a huge difference in my life. And so I'm not going to re-engage in this because it wasn't really doing anything for me. See, these uh, people who are apathetic and I don't want, I'll be totally honest with you, I didn't originally put this in my notes because I don't like saying things like this, but I feel like I'm doing a disservice to you if I don't tell you what the Bible says. And so here's what the Bible calls people like this. Again, this is not me. You can get mad, just get mad at Jesus, all right? Jesus calls these people lukewarm. It's in the book of Revelation. When, when he's talking about here is he talks about people who are neither hot nor cold, meaning they're, they're not useful. They're not doing anything. They're not fully invested. They're not committed. And so he says, and this is pretty graphic, he vomits them out of his mouth. Again, not me, okay? You don't write me an email. You can pray mail, okay? Talk to Jesus about this. I didn't do it, all right? And I feel like I'm doing a disservice if I just don't point this out is what he's trying to say is he's trying to say there is no such thing as an apathetic or lukewarm Christian. It's an oxymoron. You're either a Christian who is fully uh, committed, is involved, or you're not a Christian at all. You can't be a Christian who just is apathetic to the faith. And so um, the second thing that we talked about was a lot of Christians are angry. They're angry about politics and social justice issues, school, business closures, rules, and policies. And if I'm being honest, this is probably the camp that I fit into out of the three, is I have had more of my prayers this last year begin with, Lord, help me let go of this anger right now than I've had in any other time in my life. And there is a tension here. There's a tension between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. See, righteous anger is you are angry at the same things that God is angry about, sin. And so there is a, a time and a place to be angry when there are things in the world that are injustices, that are wrong, that are against what God wants for us. Those are things that we should be angry about. I think that's part of our job. That's being salt and light in the world. But if we're being honest, the things that we're mostly angry about are not those things. 
They're really things that are about, not God, but they're about me. <laughs> things where I feel like I maybe have been, um, I, I, I've been inconvenienced or insulted or ignored. And these are really about my pride. And so if I start to look at the anger, majority of my anger is not righteous, but unrighteous anger. I think what Doyle said last week, and we've had many conversations about this in my own personal life, is Doyle said there's really two types of, of groups of people um, that rally together. They either rally around a common cause or a common target. And I, I love that because I think that's part of what's happening. It is, you can either rally around a common cause, which is something that you aspire to. It's, it's something that's transformational. It's something that's positive, that you, you're trying to achieve something together. And these goals usually stir up things like joy and excitement and inspiration. But then people can rally around a common target. This might be a person, an idea, a thing that, that they want to defeat. That's a negative. It's something that stirs up anger and sadness and fear. And don't get me wrong, there are times in the Christian life in which we should have these kinds of emotions and which we, we should have the, these kinds of targets, these things in the world that we want to eliminate. However, if this is what defines you or the group that you belong to, it's going to be incredibly unhealthy and destructive. And this is my concern, is that in this last year, Christians have become more about a common target than a common cause, which would explain why so many are angry. If you look at Peter and John, they had every right to have a common target. They could rally Christians around them and say, look at these Roman oppressors. Look at these murderous religious leaders. We should go and defeat them, which happened historically before this. There's revolts that the, the Jews led through, throughout the uh, Roman history. But he didn't do that. He said, no, that's not our mission. Our mission is we rally together. We're going to give our lives, not in a common target, but a common cause. We want people to know about Jesus. We want to spread this message. We're willing to give up our lives for it. The last group is people who are afraid. I remember a, a year ago, I had uh, many conversations with folks that they were just afraid. And I think some of them, they were legitimately, they had legitimate reasons to be afraid. Is they were in a very at-risk group and, and it was kind of a scary situation. They didn't know how to deal with that. And, and so I think the way that I, I reacted and I wanted to react was through encouragement is just say, you know what, God's in control, let's lean into him, and we've, we've just got to trust that God's got this. And, uh, and then there was this group of people that I had conversations with that they were in, statistically, um, a very, very, like, very, they had a very slim chance of getting seriously ill. And yet, uh, they were equally, if not more, afraid than those other people. They, they were paralyzed by their fear, and I wasn't really sure how to respond to that. Because I wanted to, I know theologically I knew what the right response is. It's fear not. Jesus talks about that. But practically, I wanted to sympathize with them. But I also didn't want to, to, to reinforce or to enable their fears. And so I've been thinking for this last year, how do we approach this issue? And for the most part, we just avoided it and said, I don't know. But I'm having these conversations still a year later of these people who either have been vaccinated or are very, um, they're in a group in which the chances of them getting seriously ill are, are really, really small, and yet they're still paralyzed by fear. I got an email this week about some, from someone who I, I know has almost no danger uh, of getting sick, and they said, can you guarantee my safety before I come back to church? And I wanted to say, no, I, I can't guarantee that you won't get in a car accident on the way here. 
I can't guarantee that you're not gonna trip and fall on your way into service. I can't guarantee that you're not gonna choke on communion. I can't guarantee any of those things. And so this question popped into my head. Have we become more concerned with the safety of our bodies than the condition of our souls? I'm gonna say that just one more time so that you can get real angry. Have we, especially those at home, I know the people at home right now are just, oh, I'm going I'm to throw something. I'm not there. You can do whatever you want. Um, have we become more concerned with the safety of our bodies than the condition of our souls? I found this. Uh, I was reminded of this old story. It's uh, someone who wrote a letter to Dr. David Livingston. He's a Scottish missionary to Africa in the 1800s. And, and here's what it said. He wrote to him, he says, Dr. Livingston, is there a path paved to where you are? If there is, we have many men that we want to send to help you. He wrote back and said, if you only have men who will come if the path has been paved, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there's no path at all. God is looking for a church that says, I'm willing to take a risk. I'm not looking for safety or predictability. Ah, yep, if that's the response I thought we would get. <clears throat> I think we bought into this lie that a blessed life is a comfortable and safe life. That's, that's the American dream. That's not the biblical dream. The biblical dream is to live a blessed life means that you are going to do something that matters, that God is going to use something to, Im to use you to impact the world, and that will almost never be comfortable or safe. Look no further than the passage we're looking at today. And I can already, I, I've already prepared myself for the email, so let me save a couple just by telling you what I'm not saying right now is I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take precautions and protect ourselves and the people around us. We have done that, and we will continue to do that. In fact, I am a huge fan of safety. I am almost willing to bet that you will not go to a safer place this week than SCG. Is the precautions and the protocols that we put in, not just for COVID, but for anything. We have armed security. We lock down the kids' building. We have so many pr uh, processes and protocols to make sure that people are safe. We have masks. We have temperature checks. We're meeting in a tent. You know, like we have done everything. We've done more than anybody else in, in our community. So don't, don't get me wrong. I I'm not saying that. Here's what I am saying, though is I am, I, am, I am concerned more with people's souls than their safety. And if those two come into conflict and something has to give, I will choose their souls over their safety 100% of the time. I read a book this week, uh, I've been reading a book and I finished it this week, and it's a book about uh, Christian perspective on injustice and oppression and how we should think through these issues and we should seek justice and mercy and what that looks like and then also how to navigate through all the political rhetoric and figure out what is true and what the real problems and real solutions are and kind of a deep dive in, into that. And, and in the book, he points out that fear is talked, uh, talked about more in the Bible than oppression and injustice. And his point was this, is we should be equally as if, or more concerned with driving out fear in our lives and in our churches than we should about oppression and injustice. Because Jesus talks a lot more about driving out fear than he does about anything else. 
And so his point is, is this, is not, of course, that we shouldn't drive out uh, oppression and injustice. His point is that we cannot allow fear to take a stronghold any more than we can allow uh, racism and injustice and oppression and any of the other social ills, is we have to continue to eliminate fear because fear is something that is, I think, driving many of our decisions and we cannot let it into our lives any longer. We've been called... We've been called to a, a life of freedom. That, that's kind of one of the big things about being a Christian. It's not just about going to heaven one day. It's about living in freedom here and now. And I think that fear has snuck in and we've become enslaved to it. And we've allowed ourselves to, to be overtaken and we can rationalize why we're afraid and why we should live this way and why and maybe some of those are legitimate. But for the most part, we've simply allowed fear to overtake us. And this is why Jesus says more than almost any other command, command, Fear not. Fear not. So here, let me see if I can help you feel better about it. You should fear not because there is 100% chance that you will die. <laughs> Does that make you feel better? Death is coming for everybody, all right? It's coming for us all. There's this scene in, um, in uh, was it uh, Frozen 2? Where, um, with, uh, is it Olaf, right? And he goes, death is coming for us all. My kids laugh hysterically. I'm like, what is wrong with you? That's how you're morbid little kids. Okay, how about this? Isaiah 41.10 says, fear not, for I am with you. What if we just, what if we just use that sweet, simple little phrase? As fear begins to creep in and begins to tell us that we should know we need to not do this and we need to avoid this and we can't do this, we go, to, fear not, he's with me. I don't have to be afraid anymore. And look, I'm not here preaching at you and I'm not going, you know, you guys should do X, Y, and Z because if you know my story and you know my struggles and I've talked about OCD and all that kind of stuff, you know that my life has been so full of fear and anxiety that I am standing there next to you saying, we will not be afraid anymore. <laughs> Satan, you cannot make us afraid so that we stop worshiping so that we stop coming together, so that we cower and we hide and we, no, we will not be afraid anymore. We will stand and we will say, for he is with me. And so I don't have to be afraid, even if there is something to be afraid of. Toward the end of the prayer, here's what they ask God for, verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So let me get this straight. You just almost died. You were thrown in jail, and your prayer is for more boldness. That is not what I would have prayed for, and that is not what you would have prayed for. I would have said, you know what? I am going to pray for a vacation because this has been stressful right now. But I think that this prayer and this example is really the, what the future is going to look like. This phrase popped into my mind this week is, the future of faith is bold. See, in the past, as a culture, we all agreed on a certain set of assumptions, which were based on Judeo-Christian beliefs. And whether you were a part of that faith or not, you at least bought into that worldview and the, the assumptions and the beliefs that came along with it. And so, um, for example, in, uh, 20 years ago, if I were to ask the average American to define something s simple like marriage, they would have said, well, it'd be man, woman, and together for life, right? Now, that is not currently the consensus, or at least it's, it's debated. 
And see, as culture, and, and by the way, some of you guys are like, oh, we can't talk about that. We're going to talk about crazy stuff all the time, so you best get used to it, okay? We're going to do it in a loving and respectful manner, wherever, but let's just mature. Okay, here we go. As culture gets further away from its Judeo-Christian roots, and we lose those common assumptions and beliefs, those ones that were held, you know, as recent as 20 years ago, one of the consequences is it's going to be more and more obvious the contrast between those who still hold Judeo-Christian ethics and those who do not. And it's going to not only become more obvious, but I do believe that those who hold them are going to be ostracized. And so the future of faith, and, and I'm trying to instill this in my kids, is going to be that we have to live differently. So uh, I think it was two weeks ago, and this is a pretty common occurrence, is we were driving in our car, and my son, Ezra, who is six, he was asking um, if he could do something. And we said, no, sorry, buddy, you can't do that. And he says, well, my friends, they get to do it, and why do they get to do it, and I don't get to do it? And my wife says to our oldest, Sienna, do you want to explain to him why we can't do it? I'm like, all right, this should be fun. And she says, because we live differently than everybody else. We follow Jesus. She goes, that's right, honey. We follow Jesus, and so we don't get to do the things that some of your friends do. But here's the, here's the end, end of the day is we believe that Jesus knows better. And so we follow Jesus because he has a better way for us. And that is something, in, and it was great because my daughter, she knew. She already knew. She's eight. She knew we live differently. And I'm just trying to get them to get used to it. Hey, guess what? For the rest of your life, this is going to be something you're going to struggle with is your friends get to do X, Y, and Z, and you're not going to, and it's because we live differently. I'm trying to prepare them for what I believe is the future. To be a biblical, committed Christian in the future is, is going to take boldness. It's going to take courage and confidence that previous generations here in the United States have not maybe had to have to live out their faith on a daily basis before you could kind of blend in and be a part of culture, but I think the future looks much more like you are bold within your culture. So here's the conclusion of the story. Acts 4:32 says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one, claimed that, excuse me, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money to the sale, uh, from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had any need. And so here was the result, is they prayed for boldness and then this is what God empowered them to do, is they had bold beliefs. It says that they were to testify to the resurrection. Now this is nothing new to faith, to Christianity, is we have since day one held a pretty bold belief. We believe that this guy Jesus, 2,000 years ago, died and resurrected from the dead. That's a bold belief. And since day one, that belief has been under attack. And, and that's why I love um, the study of apologetics as the defense of the faith and the historical reliability and the historicity of the resurrection. All, I love all that kind of stuff because those are um, bold faith claims that we're making and we have to be able to defend those. But as culture changes, beliefs that were once common are now going to become outliers. And so we're not only going to hold bold beliefs, but those bold beliefs might be seen as bigoted beliefs as well. And, and we know what these are. We don't have to like be secret about them. 
is, is we know that there are issues that we are going to have to, have to be confronted with in, in our culture, things like the sanctity of life and uh, human sexuality, sexual ethics, marriage, all of these things is going to be seen as bigoted beliefs. And I think the reason why is because at a popular level, people have begun to believe that you must agree and affirm everything I do or believe if you love me. This is an outrageous belief. No marriage would ever last if this were the standard. My wife does not agree or affirm half of the dumb things that I say, and yet she still loves me. Because th this, this, this dilemma that we're forced with, either you can preserve your belief and you can lose this relationship, or you can preserve this relationship and lose your beliefs, I simply don't buy. See, I think that there's a biblical model, and the biblical model is this, is you can have truth and love. I can hold both true beliefs, and I can still love somebody at the same time. Is I can disagree with you fundamentally about some really serious things, and yet I can still love you. See, here's the dream that I would love to see one day, and I don't know if it'll ever happen, but it's good to strive towards, is one day people look at Christians and they say, you know, we disagree about some really important issues in life but I know that they love me and they would do anything for me. See, that's, that's being able to hold truth and love together. I, I think that we get to show the world a, a way forward, a better way forward with truth and love. They also lived a bold lifestyle. They were bold in their commitments and priorities. Um, it says that they were one in heart and mind. And so I think that we have to do, and I'm gonna get in some people's kitchens, <laughs> literally, you might be wanting anyone go. Um, is this commitment to one another. It's not just a commitment to your biological family, it's a commitment to your church as family. And so this means that we're going to have to move from being consumers to contributors. It means that we're going to have to say, you know what, I am committed to this church. I'm not gonna church hop, I'm not gonna come here and just expect something. No, I'm gonna come here and I'm gonna say, I'm in my family, how can I serve? Because that's what family looks like. A family that is all about consuming instead of coming and contributing in mutual love for one another is a very unhealthy family. And it calls us to be committed to one another. And so this commitment is going to take us from being consumers to contributors. And, and let me just talk to parents for a moment here, or grandparents who are helping uh, raise some, some young kids, is in the future, I think we have to give up the belief that if we attend church twice a month, somehow we're gonna raise kids that love Jesus as adults. You know, it didn't really work before. So I'm a millennial, and I know the stats on millennials, and I also know what, um, what happened to millennials. And it, this idea that somehow we can drop in and out of church and hopefully one day these kids are gonna love Jesus, and then when they've all walked away, which if you're like me, you've seen all of your friends walk away from faith, um, you had this, this belief or this hope that maybe one day they're gonna come back. When they get married and they have kids, they're gonna come back, and what? guess what, surprise, stats show they're not coming back because they were never really here. Parents, we gotta do it different this time. I'm not here to condemn you, I'm not here to, you know, I feel good. No, no, parents, we just gotta do it different. We gotta be better. It means we're gonna have to live differently than the rest of the parents out there. We're gonna have to raise our kids very differently. This means that if there's something that's conflicting, like a hobby or a sport with church time, with Bible study, with family time, with whatever, we're gonna have to go, sorry, you can't do that. 
because we have to live differently. If your hope is to raise kids who love Jesus, we're gonna have to live differently. Also, we're bold with their money and their resources and their time. You notice that they started selling off their possessions to support ministry and give and, 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 and be able to address all the needs in their community. Tim Keller says this when he's explaining the early church and how it took off. He says, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave practically everybody their money. We're there again. And so we have to learn to be incredibly promiscuous with our money and our resources. Just give it away like you don't care. Like, you know what? I don't care because I, I know where it's going and I know where I'm going and I'm not worried about it. We just give, give, give and just eye-popping proportions where people just go, are you sure you should do that? And we go, yeah. My, my uh, daughter on the way here is so cute. <clears throat> she took her allowance and she said, Dad, it was like a lot of money for her. It's like 20 bucks. I'm like, that's a lot of money for me. It's like 20 bucks. And she goes, I think I should give this to the church. Oh, you think so, babe? She goes, yeah, I think this is right. I think this is what I'm supposed to do. I said, that's awesome. Let's see if we can continue to, to live a, a life where we're generous with our resources. But it also says that we're supposed to be stingy with our bodies. If you've noticed, um, that's not what's currently taking place in our culture. And I remember a long time ago when I was in high school, and people found out that I was going to wait until I was married and that I didn't drink and I didn't do, they just looked at me like I was from a different planet. Like, who are you? What are you talking about? And it's because I knew that I was just going to be, I was going to live different than everybody else. And so I was going to have to treat my body differently. They're also bold in their forgiveness and reconciliation. See, this idea of cancel culture is a direct result of a culture losing its ability to forgive. They can't forgive because they don't have the emotional and spiritual resources to be able to forgive. See, a wrong has been done and someone must pay. And if you don't have Jesus to pay that on your behalf, then you have to pay. See, Christians are the only ones that have the resources to be able to forgive. Everybody else says something's been done that's, that's wrong. And so we're going to make somebody pay. And Christians say, you're right. That's what Jesus did. We get to be people who come and be a presence in this world that offers forgiveness and reconciliation. And then, of course, they are bold in their invitations. Remember, the whole purpose of their prayer was not to have this mystical experience where the Holy Spirit would come and they get to do something really cool. The whole purpose of this prayer was for the Holy Spirit to come and embolden them so that they may share this gospel message with people. And so the result of all of this, as you may know, is that the world was turned upside down. That just these people who started out as 120 people at the beginning of Acts turns into thousands very quickly and very quickly it turns the, from thousands to millions and millions to billions and it turns the world upside down. And it all started with this simple prayer, Lord, will you make me more bold? So here's the question, I end with this. Is what would the word be that would describe your faith in this last year? No, for some of you guys, it may be bold. And I'll be honest, I have been so impressed by some people's faith this last year. People whom I didn't know or maybe I didn't expect have just stepped up in some significant ways and have really lived out faith. Like they have been serving, they have been giving, they've been showing up, they have just really done it. And I have just been like shocked of how cool that is. 
But for most of us, I'm not sure bold would be how we would describe our faith. And so maybe we need to do something. Maybe it's a lifestyle change, it's a habit, it's a change in priorities or giving of our time and money. We need to forgive somebody, we need to share our faith. Whatever it is, here's what I want you to just take away is what would it look like for me to be bold in this coming year? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the ability for us to come and and to worship together as a church family and to be able to um, not only connect with you but with one another. And Lord, um, whatever uh, word that we would describe our faith in this past year, my prayer is that in this coming year that we would look back and we would say, wow, we were able to be bold. We were able to be bold in in our our resources and giving, in our serving, in our our sharing of the gospel. We were able to be bold and given in so many opportunities in order to do something transformational in, in our world, Lord God. And so Lord, I just pray that those of us who may have been struggling in this last year, maybe have drifted a little bit away from our faith, maybe have become apathetic, that you would draw us close, that you would, you would remind us what it looks like to follow you closely. And for those of us maybe who are angry and bitter about all the things that we've seen in the world, that we would remember that you were in control. And for those of us who are just afraid, that you would give us not a spirit of fear, but of power, Lord God. Lord, we bring it all back to you. We point everything back to you because you are good, Lord. To name we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message and you can always join us online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.